The more things change, the more they stay the same on this healthcare edition of Industry Focus. Welcome to Healthcare Industry Focus. It is April 27th, 2016. I'm your host, Christine Hargis. And if you've been listening to the Industry Focus shows that came on Tuesday and Monday of this week, then you'll know it is throwback week. So we've reached out to some of the folks that were involved with this show before all of your current hosts were. And so in that light, I have special guest Michael Douglas on the show, who has been doing this kind of thing since before it was even podcasts. Right, yeah. So I started at The Motley Fool in uh, early 2014. And at the time, the healthcare show was called Market Checkup, and it was only videos. We didn't do a podcast at all with it. Um, so it, it, I was there when Industry Focus first became uh, a, a by-industry um, uh, podcast and, and show, and then eventually handed off to our, I will say, much more talented current host, Christine Hargis. Well, thanks. I don't know if I can truly accept that compliment, but I think you did a great job, too. And I'm really excited to have you back on the show today. I mean, just thinking about what has happened in healthcare since I started following the industry, which it's been about two years or so, mm-hmm. things, as I kind of alluded to in the, the teaser for this show, things have changed a little bit, but a lot of the themes are roughly the same. Um, let's take a look at one of the biggest topics for you guys that you were covering, which was Obamacare. What was the state of that two, three years ago? Right. And it's it's kind of funny because, um, as, as you mentioned, these kind of overall big trends, a lot of them are demographic. And so those things don't really, well, change that much. It's, a, it's an iceberg. It's a glacier. It moves slowly and it makes big changes over time. Um, but yeah, so the Affordable Care Act um, had been passed some years before I, I came, but um, the uh, open enrollment for the first public exchanges was ongoing when I began in healthcare at The Motley Fool. And so uh, we were definitely covering, hey, they've extended the deadline for the exchanges because those exchanges, they, uh, because of all those technical difficulties they were having at the time, they ended up extending the deadline through the end of March 2014. Um, and there was a lot of like, hey, how many people are they actually going to get uh, in the exchanges? And is the... Um, is the law going to be a success? Are they going to get enough young people? Are the insurers going to play ball? You know, and there were just kind of all of these like very much big, grand, open questions. There are a ton of questions and kind of very few answers. And I think we're still answering a lot of these questions. One that I want to have you expand on a little bit is why young people were so important. So young people were considered uh, a proxy for healthy people um, as a sort of as a general rule. That was kind of the shorthand they were using because, you know, young people are less likely to have a lot of chronic illnesses as because many of those tend to be age-related. Um, and so the hope then was that these young people would help mitigate the cost of a lot of very sick people coming onto the exchanges, you know, sick people who had been previously excluded from personal uh, health insurance. Um, and so uh, the hope was that then that could sort of help de-risk the pool a little bit so that the insurers would be able to make a buck. Then the insurers would play ball and get involved. Um, and so that, you know, the health plans wouldn't become just totally unaffordable. I mean, there was a lot of discussion of the quote unquote death spiral, right? That would happen if not enough young people signed up. And because of that, they, the insurers had to, you know, jack up prices at which point people who had previously signed up would say, ah, 
the next year they'd say, ah, never mind, I'm done. And then they'd back out. And then the pool would get smaller and smaller and riskier and riskier and more and more expensive. And it would just cause the law's overall collapse. So what were you personally expecting? And has it played out like that? So the death spiral obviously didn't happen, right? Whoever <laughs> came up with that term, that's just brilliant. I mean, that really yeah. inspires fear right there. The death spiral. It is, it is good. It was good or, I guess, uh, depending on your point of view, bad marketing. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I expected the law to enroll a lot of people, um, and it certainly did that. Um, I think we actually at one point made guesses, and I'm pretty sure I was pretty wildly wrong, but I did guess that they would beat the 7 million they were predicting, and they ended up doing, I think, 8 million um, in the exchanges that year, and then another, I think, 4.8 million or so in Medicaid and Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP. To your Um, credit, nobody has really been able to estimate these things too well. I mean, the CBO uh, expected to have 10 million enrollees by the end of 2016, and it far surpassed it. It was 12.7 million for 2016. Of course, there will be a little bit of attrition there, because the guess was for the end of 2016. But still, these numbers are really hard to pin down. Yes. Um, And that's, you know, kind of one of those broader healthcare problems, right? Just across the board, we're doing a lot of guesswork. And so that's a a drawback. Um, I will say it was... Um, I, I very much believed that Anthem would do very well because they or they were called WellPoint at the time. They've changed their name since then. They're now Anthem um, because they decided to play ball because they said, you know what? These exchanges, these are full of people that we can uh, make a relationship with. You know, we are the we operate a lot of Blue Cross Blue Shield policies. We're, we're we've got a great brand and we think that we can play here. We can play aggressively. We can get a lot of people and we can kind of build an overall structure that will help us really drive shareholder value. And so far, that has very much panned out for Anthem. They're a little bit unique in this regard. I'm mean, something we talked about on the show just a couple of weeks ago was United Health Group's decision to drop out of almost all of the Obamacare exchanges. Yeah. Um, United Health Group was always one of the more skeptical ones. Um, and uh, I mean, I remember initially they only did a handful of exchanges. I want to say it was five or something like that. Um, and then they scaled up and then they promptly scaled right back down. <laughs> I just I, I don't know why, but the image that I get of them watching Obamacare is like a nervous kid at a pool that like might be a little bit too cold. <laughs> so he like dips his toes in. And then he's not really sure about it. And he's like, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to do this. I rip the Band-Aid off. Mm -hmm. And he just scampers right back out of the water because it was way too cold. Yeah. No, I I think that's apt. Um, I will say, you know, cost continues to be a problem um, outside of your Medicaid expansion states. Um, And by the way, no surprise, I think, that the Medicaid expansion has steadily increased. You know, there have been a number of states that were holdouts in 2013 and 2014 that have since expanded Medicaid. Um, because it's just a win, an easy win for them, free money from the government, and um, that has been a boon to your Medicaid insurers. Um, it was pretty clear that they were going to benefit from that. You know, anyone who said that insurance companies were going to, you know, collapse because of the Affordable Care Act, I think has been proven very much wrong. Um, it's certainly not been a huge net benefit for some of them, but for some, it has been a nice win. So one of the other huge things that I, I'm sure you were talking about a ton a couple of years ago had to do with a more specific uh, niche of the market, and mm-hmm. that is in hepatitis C. And I, so I remember when I first started following this industry, it was right before Harvoni, which is a Gilead Sciences hepatitis C drug, was approved. And that was a huge, huge story. So mm-hmm. I can only imagine when its predecessor, Savaldi, was first approved. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I... Um 
I was there when, or I was uh, covering Gilead Sciences when it um, uh, announced its first quarter 2014 earnings, which was the first full quarter of Savaldi on the market. Savaldi had been approved in, I want to say, December of 2013. Uh, you know, when they reported 2013 data, they had like three weeks of data, so that's not really helpful. But um, their first full quarter on the market, Savaldi did $2.1 billion, which is just unheard of. I mean, the previous. Um, and it was easily the fastest drug ramp ever, and you know it put this drug on track to be just this massive winner in 2014. You know, previously you'd had Insevac by um, by Vertex, uh, which had been a hepatitis C drug. You know, it had managed, I think, I want to say one point something billion at one point. You know, and it was huge in its time before Savaldi just completely knocked it off and basically wiped out those revenues almost immediately. A really big story. And so one of the worries that came with this, because people saw what happened to, to Vertex with mm-hmm. Insevec, and then they also saw after that Johnson Johnson's Olysio, which also became obsolete mm-hmm. yep. due to the Gilead Sciences drugs. People kind of thought, is this another flash in the pan that's going to be easily replaced by competitive threats? Yeah, or or even, you know, just how many people are they going to, you know, are they going to just treat everybody who's going to be immediately treatable and then just be done? Um, and that didn't happen. Uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty darn clear. I and mean, even today, Gilead Sciences has treated, uh, I, I want to say it's less than it's less than or around 10% of the United States hepatitis C population. And that's has been the market that Gilead's been playing in the most. Um, so very much hepatitis C is, I think, a longer term uh, fix than I think a lot of people were thinking at in those sort of initial heady days, because it just takes time. Right. And of course, one other thing to watch is a potential for a Gilead Sciences pan-genotypic mm-hmm. hepatitis C drug, which we won't get into the nitty gritty of exactly what that means. But let's just say it could be a game changer in this market, uh, looking at a PADUFA date of June 2016 there. Well, and that's one of the really cool things about Gilead. When you look at, a, you know, Vertex with, um, with Insevec and Johnson & Johnson with Alessio, they got wiped out by a competitor. What Gilead's doing in a lot of ways is kind of wiping out their own drugs, right? Like they they had Savaldi and it was revolutionary. And they created Harvoni. And Savaldi's sales fell off pretty quickly, but Harvoni became the new standard of care. And now they're working on this pangenotypic combination, which could potentially become the next standard of care. And consistently, their opponents have just not been able to catch up. And this is why they're maintaining around 90% market share in hepatitis C, which is just Nuts. I mean, you don't see that really anywhere. So, um, those of you who've been listening for a while have heard me gush about Gilead in the past. So, I'm going to restrain myself from here. But, uh, <laughs> but just for the record, it's really interesting to see how they've been able to do that. For our listeners, earlier before this episode, I was on the Gilead Sciences Investor Relations website, and Michael comes walking over to my desk, and from probably 15 feet away, he goes, "Oh, you're on Gilead's website. I recognize the coloring. <laughs> this has got to be his favorite stock." Uh, uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> so, last major topic that. I know you guys were covering a good bit before I picked up the show, was the quite epically named Mankind Corporation. So if we hop back in that time machine, what was going on with Mankind? Gosh. So Mankind Corporation, uh, ever since I've watched the stock, um, has been just a battleground stock. So um, the, the the key bull thesis around it was that they have this drug called Afreza, and it's an inhalable insulin, and it's really it's a mealtime insulin the idea is that you know for people who don't like um who don't like the needle uh the needle pricks um this could be a big thing um and it had been rejected by the FDA twice and so they were coming in for their third potential approval um and i think the actual approval date was in uh, june of 2014 so it was like right when i kind of had started hopping in and it was a really interesting stock 
lot of people really pro it, a lot of people really against it. I think high short interest at the time. So definitely, Even then, wow. yeah, kind of your classic battleground stock. Yeah, there really were sky high expectations for Afresa, which we've seen as it played out really didn't take off at all. And we took a lot of flack for um, I. I David Williamson and I, and we were sort of the, the, the precursors to Christine and Todd on this. Um, we both very much felt that Afreza was not going to work out very well. Um, and that viewpoint has been largely vindicated. Indeed. So I know you're not afraid of a little bit of speculation. And so uh-oh, just to, <laughs> to put you on the spot <laughs> just a little bit, can you make a prediction for, say, two years from now, what do you think industry-focused health here is going to be talking about? Gosh. Um, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give you... In fact, I'll give you three. Wow. Yeah. Let's just game off. <laughs> I, I knew you'd be up for this. Um, yeah. So the first one, you, we, whoever is on the show will absolutely still be talking about the Affordable Care Act because... In um, whatever way it exists. In some way, shape, or form. Because there, um, I believe that you know this health reform um, seems likely to stay in some way, shape, or form, and um, the adjustments and changes it's making to the industry are tremendous. Um, as a corollary to that, second thing, I think you'll absolutely be talking about mergers and acquisitions. Um, what we've seen was, you know, uh, a lot of hospitals ha- have had have been kind of buying each other up for a while. Um, this spread to, um, it's always been the case in biotech too, but it's really spread in the last few years to your PBMs and your insurers. Um, we've been seeing just a lot of M&A activity. And I expect that, I mean, maybe we won't be setting records in two years. I don't know. But I think there will still be a lot going on because consolidation in healthcare gives you economies of scale. Um, and when you're on the bargaining table um, trying to talk about a drug price, if you've got more members, um, then that gives you a harder lever to pull and a better way to say, hey, let's cut a deal. You don't want to be not on this formulary. So, And on the flip side, I think you'll see the drug companies bulking up for the same reason, because that'll give them more more drugs, more things in their arsenal, more things to go after. Um, I think that is absolutely going to be a long-term trend in healthcare. Yeah, somewhat of a domino effect. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the third thing we'll still be talking about, um, and we didn't really touch on it here, but is immuno-oncology, um, because um, these cancer drugs that, in theory, sort of teach the body how to recognize and, and kill cancer cells, um, or at least decloak those cancer cells so the, the body's natural immune response is triggered. Um, you know, It's something we were talking about two years ago, and we didn't have time to talk about it today. Um, I think it's something that will actually, absolutely still be on the agenda two years from now, because it is a, a broad uh, sector. There is a lot of digging still being done to figure out. You've had your early winners, right? Bristol and Merck have both done pretty well based on their immuno-oncology drugs, Keytruda and Opdivo. Um, but I think you've got just a ton of small cap biotechs that are now looking into this really hard. You've got Celgene with a lot of their uh, um, a lot of their collaborations working on it as well. And so I think there's just enormous opportunity there. And I think that while one signaling pathway or another or one set of proteins or another may or may not work out, I expect that that will be something that we are still very much looking at in healthcare in two years. It does feel like it's a, a field that's only in the very early stages. Yeah. So those are some really interesting answers. I'm inclined to agree with them for the record, but I am Thank you. Thank absolutely you. <laughs> going to be writing them down in my Outlook calendar for two years from now. <laughs> we'll check back in. Listeners, we hope that you've enjoyed stepping in the time machine with us for a little bit today. Michael, it's always great when we get to do a show together. So thanks for playing ball. Thanks for having me. 
As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against these stocks, so don't buy or sell based solely on what you hear. If you have questions, comments, you can always shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or reach out on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. Industry Focus.